Reading the Globe summarizes, synthesizes, and criticizes the week's most important and fascinating stories. Here's your host, Michael Washburn. This is Reading the Globe. It's April 13, 2022. I'm Michael Washburn, reporting from New York. Succession at Fox News. Whether or not you are a fan of Fox News, it is hard to argue with characterizations of the outlet as one of the few popular forums for right-of-center viewpoints in our national media. And it is popular indeed. CNN and MSNBC cannot come close in the ratings game. Tucker Carlson's brash, strong-headed commentary makes for a bright burst of political incorrectness in a largely monochromatic media landscape. Hence, it is reasonable to wonder, as Ken LaCourt does in an April 12 article on National Review Online, what will happen to Fox News after the reign of owner Rupert Murdoch, 91, comes to an end. LaCourt believes there is cause for hope that the station will carry on its mission of promoting viewpoints and perspectives that are not welcome in the legacy media. He finds cause for optimism in the person of the young and dynamic Lachlan Murdoch, who is executive chairman and CEO of Fox Corporation. The younger Murdoch, the presumptive heir to the News Corporation empire, recently gave a speech at the Center for the Australian Way of Life that harshly criticized woke culture's attacks on figures and symbols of America's past and what he termed the destructive rewriting of its history, LaCourt notes. LaCourt praises Murdoch for having criticized the 1619 project of the New York Times and blasted censorship on Facebook and Twitter and the media's narrow-mindedness and hostility to opposing viewpoints more generally. Debate is essential to democracy. Important issues need to be aired, examined, and judged. It can be uncomfortable, but it is the media's key role in our system. Hewing to one orthodoxy does not allow this, and is not the media's role, Lackland states. A bulk of Lackland's talk is about Australia's relationship to its own past. They have wokeness and cancel culture down there, in case you hadn't heard. White Australians come under attack for having invaded the space of Aboriginal peoples and established a way of life based on commerce and materialism. We must arm our young people with the facts and not undermine them with false ideological narratives, Lackland says. Clearly, he means for this injunction to apply not only to Australia, but to other countries under assault by forces that wish to deny people any sense of pride in their heritage and the achievements and noble traits of figures of the past. His exhortations apply as much to America as to Australia, and it is reasonable to expect that under a media empire led by Lachlan Murdoch, Fox News will continue to inspire the public to revolt against the excesses of political correctness and the efforts to denounce, humiliate, and cancel people and publications of the past and the present that offer ideas and viewpoints at odds with the woke narrative. Descent into Hell Can Mayor Eric Adams fulfill the pledge on which he campaigned last year to reverse the decline of New York City and the decay of civil society amid surging crime? 
The headline of columnist Michael Goodwin's piece in the New York Post on April 12 is, After latest bloodbath, time is running out for Hochul and Adams to save New York City. The bloodbath here is an incident that shocked millions of people on the morning of April 12 as a crazed lone wolf assailant, tentatively identified as Frank James, set off smoke bombs and shot passengers on a Manhattan-bound N-train in Brooklyn, wounding at least 29. Noting that New York is in the third year of a crime wave, with 2022 worse than 2021 and 2021 worse than 2020, Goodwin calls rising crime in all major categories a factor driving people to want to move out, including wealthy New Yorkers whom Goodwin regards as pillars of the massive budgets that City Hall wants to put to use on its pet projects. Goodwin thinks that Mayor Adams, who ran on a tough law-and-order platform, has moved away from the promises he made and has turned into something of an appeaser of the wing of the Democratic Party associated with militants like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. If Adams continues to play this role and to avoid being the kind of leader people sick of crime thought they were voting for, the rapid decline is likely to accelerate still further. A former cop who was a thorn in the side of the police brass in the past must realize now that his success depends almost entirely on the NYPD taking back the streets, parks, and subways, Goodwin writes. Let there be no question about it. Crime is out of control in New York, and it is all the more tragic given the progress made under the administrations of Rudy Giuliani in the 1990s and Michael Bloomberg in the current millennium. It is not as though recent history holds no lessons here. This is how cities die. The flight of thousands of productive and prosperous residents from Detroit in the wake of the catastrophic riots of July 1967 heralded a once great American city's decay into a Boschian landscape of devastated shells of buildings and empty lots slowly reclaimed by nature. It took many years for Detroit to begin to rebuild and recover, and Detroit still has a very long way to go possibly further than New York has to go, on its current course toward being a place where no one wants to live, work, and raise families anymore. Israel's Third Way Ever since February 24, the blue and yellow flag of Ukraine has been ubiquitous in the news and on social media. People around the world are eager to show their support as Ukraine suffers repeated and ever-intensifying battering from Russian forces, including a missile attack on a train depot that killed at least 50 civilians. Millions of people want to help Ukraine in her darkest hour. In this regard, Israel is no outlier. As Patrick Kingsley notes in an April 10 article in the New York Times, Israel has made serious efforts including setting up a field hospital in Ukraine, sending humanitarian aid, and joining diplomatic efforts at the UN to sanction Russia. At the same time, Kingsley notes, Israel's Prime Minister, Naftali Bennett, has largely refrained from demonizing Russia or blaming Russia for the crisis. The balancing act that Bennett has undertaken has drawn criticism and charges of a conflict of interest. The article reminds us that 13% of Israel's 9.2 million people were born in the former Soviet Union. Many of these Russian-born citizens now hold highly prominent positions in Israeli society, 
as well as having ties to Russia. The article gives a few examples, namely billionaire Roman Abramovich, who has ties to Vladimir Putin and has been a prominent donor to Israeli organizations, and Yitzchak Miralashvili, the owner of Channel 14. But the New York Times article quickly turns to experts who are of the opinion that these powerful figures have not muted Israel's official response to the Ukraine crisis, and that the government of Naftali Bennett is acting on considerations of national security in treading carefully here. The article notes that Israeli business leaders who were born in Russia and speak Russian as their first language are not, in all cases, wealthier than people who have moved to Israel from other parts of the world. A Forbes magazine list of the 100 richest Israelis includes only 10 from the former Soviet Union. Given these realities, it is not so obvious that Israeli business leaders with ties to Russia are in any position to steer Israeli government policy. Kingsley's article goes on to mention that Russian-owned media operations in Israel have not sided with Putin or broadcast pro-Russian messages. It appears that, while some Russian-born entrepreneurs have done phenomenally well in Israel, it may be due to their intelligence and entrepreneurship, and any charges of dual loyalty are just as false and odious as they have been at other times and places in modern history. Golden State Buffoonery Now that ethnic studies courses are a requirement in California's public schools, it seems reasonable for parents and the public to want to know what effects such courses are having on those subjected to them. The implementation of ethnic studies has not been without controversy. An April 12 article by Katie Grimes on the website California Globe recounts how Governor Gavin Newsom signed Assembly Bill 101 into law last fall after having vetoed an earlier version, Bill 331, on the grounds of a lack of balance in the viewpoints and perspectives it would impose in California classrooms. But Grimes's article challenges the notion that the version of the bill that Governor Newsom deemed worthy of signing is, in fact, balanced and inclusive. She quotes an unnamed education consultant who told California Globe in 2021, The ethnic studies model curriculum, loaded with Marxist ideology, is already sowing deep divisions among peoples and generally maligns people of European descent and Christianity. Grimes also questions the claims that proponents of ethnic studies have made about how the curricula supposedly boost academic performance. She quotes two professors, Abram Weiner of the University of Pennsylvania and Richard Sandler at UCLA, stating in a March 29 article in Tablet Mag that studies purporting to show an improvement in the GPAs of ninth graders who have taken these courses are based on vague and inconclusive data that could be interpreted either way. Indeed, one does have to wonder about the veracity and fairness of the claims advanced by people like Said Bonilla at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst that taking ethnic studies classes will boost your GPA. Even if we were to give Benilla the benefit of the doubt and concede that some students have done better academically, is that because undergoing such indoctrination has magically made them better thinkers and writers with improved memories and reasoning abilities? It is hard to dismiss another possibility 
that such activism in the guise of education is less rigorous and simply requires you to pump your fist and chant in unison with the left-wing messages of the instructors. As a general rule, it is easy to tell a real discipline from a pseudo-discipline. When we say history or economics or philosophy, we invoke a field so vast and with so many distinct and opposing traditions and schools of thought that we could never automatically associate one particular viewpoint or agenda with the field in question. But ethnic studies is not a dueling ground of rival viewpoints and perspectives. There is one ideology, one message, and one agenda. It is that people of European descent are the bad guys and are on the way out. Written and read by Michael Washburn for Audio Hopper. Most podcasts are awful. Most news is noise. You need real news. Narrated. You need Audio Hopper. Human narrations of the most compelling news, culture, and entertainment stories. Audio Hopper. Real news. Narrated. In the App Store.